0: Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomises the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares. And if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Welcome back to part two of the Andrew Colvin interview on the Courage to Lead interview series. In part two, we hear Andrew talk about three main themes, his commissionership as the commissioner in charge of the Australian Federal Police, his ongoing role in the Champions of Change organization and his role, he talks about it as one of his proudest moments in his lengthy career in leading the National Bushfire Recovery Agency, the first of its kind at a national level in response to the 2019 black summer fires in New South Wales. As commissioner, he identified the Australian Federal Police had a negative culture that was holding the organization back from what it could be. So he took culture on at a hierarchical level with a radical transformational leadership approach. Andrew makes the assertion that you can never claim victory on culture. The inertia of an organization will always try to bring back culture to where you started from. Andrew makes the observation that police have two traits. They hate the way things are and they hate change. Andrew sought to make change business as usual as a leader's job is to do three main things. Improve yourself, improve your people by giving them support to continually change and improve your organisation. The content of part two of Andrew Colvin's interview is like no other interview I've done. It really is a blueprint on how to achieve a better culture for any workplace. I really hope you enjoy the second part of the interview as it's just mind-blowing.
1: So how'd it come about? I mean, I, I can I obviously made, I, I settled in my mind that um, when the Commissioner, because the Commissioner at this point about 2014 said I'm not going to restand. stand um, so you need to think about do you, to, to all his deputies, do you um, want to step forward for the process? Um, obviously that's not a decision that you make alone, uh, it was a decision, a discussion with my family, my kids are still young at that point. Um, we knew that it would have an impact on us as a family, but the family was right behind me. And I don't know that I ever really expected that I would get it. That's probably, I mean, I think most of my promotions, I never expected to get them. Um, and I had good friends that were also applying for the role. Yeah, really good. People off that PLS program I talked about at AIPM yeah. were applying for the role, several of them and they would just would have been you know just as um, capable of the job so um but i decided to put my my myself forward and i i did that for a couple of reasons one i was encouraged by lots of people in the organization to say look we think we need your style um and and we would back you so yeah you do your you do your pulse check right you don't want to be the commissioner that everybody hates you want to know that people are, are, are going to support you um uh, and the process is is not what people think. it's a it's a long drawn out process, but it's it's a bit of speed dating with different people where you sit and share your ideas and your visions. It wasn't a long application process. Uh, and I think about it now, what I pitched to government was a change agenda. Um, and it was an agenda based on what I felt the AFP. I wanted the AFP to be comfortable in its skin to know its job. Um, because we become many things to many people and we grow in massively. Uh, but I look back at that now, Alan and go, God, that was naive. Um, yeah. you know I, and I probably had these really uh, unrealistic expectation that the vision that I had for the organization would take me a few years um, and then I could help consolidate it. it was the reality is changes is, change is constant. Yeah, yeah, Change is also BAU. I think that's the other thing that we call things change that doesn't change. BAU is about improvement. Yeah. And I just wanted us to be an organisation that constantly learned, constantly tried to get things better. Um, do you
0: want to um, just, um, I mean, because I, this this talk will be like a constable woman might be listening to this or so, yeah. or or yeah. a non-police officer. So BAU, BAU is...
1: B- business as usual.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, as part, any organisation
1: going through business as usual should be trying to improve. You know, I think it's in, in, incumbent on a leader to do three things. Improve yourself, so constantly learn improve those around you, to give opportunities for them to grow and develop um, and to improve the organisation. Don't just think, oh, well, it worked for the last commissioner. I'm just going to do the same thing. It's incumbent to change. So and now whether that's BAU change, as in just constantly improvement or it's radical transformation is where the decision points are. And I probably started from a incremental BAU, but realised that there was an inertia built into the AFP and policing that made it hard. So I went more for transformation, um, especially around culture.
0: Uh, I, again, this is unscripted, but you're just talking my you're talking my hot button now. Um, <laughs> um, take take us there. Well, so if you you so what did you call about it? you you radical transformation? And the next word out of your mouth, next sentence out of your mouth. I I wanted to focus on rad, radical transformation. I wanted to focus on culture. Yep. so why tell yep. why and what so, so I,
1: I didn't I didn't embark on commissioner wanting to take on culture uh, others will will probably be surprised to hear that but I I wanted to change I wanted the organization to be comfortably in its skin and to be the best organization it could be but what I started to realize is that we had some culture that was holding us back I didn't know what that culture was but I wanted to explore it and I wanted to be I was prepared to be vulnerable enough to test it right so because I've been in the organization for a long time, I was naive to things, things that happened around me. And I remember going home to my wife at one point who'd left the organization after about 20 years and saying, Oh, well, actually, no, what I did first was I went back to my executive and I said, I've I've been told from externals that we have a culture problem. I've been in this organization twenty-five years. I don't quite understand it. Um, and and you know, the executive were like, Well, we're not sure, boss, what it is, um, but we're on the journey with you, so let's explore it. So I made it permissible for people to come and talk to me and probably deep down thinking who's going to come and knock on the commissioner's door and sit on my couch and tell me their story but they did they they did in numbers and they gave me a view of their journey in the afp that had not been my journey
0: yeah.
1: uh, and and that shocked me to my core it's from people who i knew very well some in particular um who had been who had experiences that I was like, my God, why didn't you do something about that? Why didn't you say something? And they're like, you don't realise what it's like for a big portion of this organisation. So I remember going home, my dad and my wife, and saying, Oh, I'm hearing all this, and she just looked at me and she said, You're an idiot. You, (laughs) you, you, I I was in the organisation with you for 20 years. Did you not see the challenges, the different journey, the different things that I dealt with that you just didn't deal with? You didn't have to, and that. So that, that made me a little bit angry, to be honest, Alan. I thought, hang on, I don't want to be the commissioner of an organisation that's got these deep secrets that, yeah. that, that everyone's experience isn't equal. I wasn't naive. No one's experience is ever going to be equal. But I just thought, hang on, we've got a carpet here. and We just keep sweeping stuff under.
0: Mm.
1: So, I, yeah, good, bad, worse, or not. Others will make a judgement on that. I decided I was going to tackle this because I felt we couldn't achieve what I wanted in the organisation if we weren't true with ourselves. And so we went about this journey of culture. Um, you know, we uh, I asked Elizabeth Broderick, who's just recently finished, had recently finished as the sex discrimination commissioner, to come in and um, take a deep look at the organisation. Uh, you know, I was well supported by the executive team in doing that, and it threw up things that we weren't ready for. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it historical, but to me that didn't matter because that was who yeah. we are. That was our identity. Um, And a lot of it, though, was still going on. And, and that led to... That led to some mental health challenges as well. I, I um, you know, I, I think about this every day. I still had a number of officers take top, officers take their own lives in my term yeah. as commissioner.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that takes its toll. Uh, yeah. You yeah, know, I, I went and spoke to every family of officers that did that, and that's that's hard.
0: Yeah. But
1: necessary. Yeah. But I just believe that we needed to go on this journey of culture, right? And and the thing I would say now, and you know, this, my successor afterwards, I know is doing it his way and still continuing that journey. You can never claim victory on culture. The moment you turn your eyes and focus on something else, or or don't give it the attention it needs, the inertia, the tide, call it what you like, brings it back. And policing is particularly bad for that. I joke all the time, there's two things that you can be, you can take to the bank about police officers. They hate the way things are, and they detest change. And that's that's just reality, right? So you've got to work with that and bring people on the journey with you. Um,
0: can you? And um, that- can you? Uh, like, I love where you're taking us, and, and there's so many different rabbit hole, rabbit warrens we could go <laughs> down. Well, we're at an hour and twenty-five, or, or any. So if you've got time to keep on going, I'd like to keep on going um, because there's there's so much more to your story after your commissionership. Um, what did you do to take on culture? That you know, what were probably, probably your first three things that you decided to change? That maybe you're most satisfied with. Um,
1: so yes. I tried to break the hierarchy. Um, if I'm honest, I wanted to I wanted to give voice to people in the organisation who wouldn't necessarily have traditionally had a voice. And organisations like police, the military, in fact, the public service is very hierarchical really hugely hierarchical, right? So you can be sitting at the top of that tree as a deputy or commissioner or even assistant commissioner, and you can be quite naive and shielded from the reality. So I tried to break that. I wanted to give a voice to people who were um, experiencing something different in the organisation to me. That made my executive at times uncomfortable because I I did a lot of forums with constables around around the country where, you know, to this day, I'm proud of the fact that they trusted me to give me their version of events and their stories. Um, did everything change as a result of them telling me what their experiences is? No, but we tried. Um, but I also tried to shake up. Yeah, uh, you know, I introduced targets. Yeah, the D word in policing. Um, to be quite kind of nice honest with you, Alan, if I could have, I would have introduced quotas. Um, yeah. Because I'm, I'm a firm believer that targets gives you an opportunity to, to weasel out from underneath them. Uh, I tried to change our recruiting practices. I tried to change the experiences of women and and other vulnerable groups in the organisation. Uh, Tried to change the way policing went about how we thought about this. So traditionally we were we we're a punitive organization. That's what we do, right? So we someone brings a complaint forward, has the courage to come forward and say, I've been treated poorly. They then lose control of the process. It goes off into professional standards or internal investigations and, and they re-victimize time and time again while they go through the process. We see it, we see it outside policing, and we changed our practices with um, family and domestic violences, with sexual assaults. we changed how we dealt with that in the courts and how we dealt with victims, but we were still doing it the same old way internally. Yeah. So I tried to introduce processes where the victim had control um, and they could be free to come and tell their story. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to shake that up a little bit. I wanted to get more diverse voices at our top table. Um, <laughs> I remember one of the things that we did that... Um, Rightly probably was changed very quickly after I left, but um, we introduced blind applications in the process because I wanted the organisation to realise how much um, subconscious bias that we had. A recruit, one of my key recruiters, said to me once when he had a yeah you know, we'd had a long chat and he had a moment of realisation. He said, "You know what, boss? Every time I get up in the morning and I'm going to go and do recruitment panels or promotion panels, I look in the mirror and I say I'll have two more of those." And, and I said, that's the whole problem. We're just promoting like for like. We're bringing yeah. through like for like. We think no one can do my job unless they've had my experience. So yeah. I wanted to change that. I wanted to shake that up. Um, did I get it right? No. Um, did, it, did did we make changes? Yes. Uh, is it a journey? Yep. And will it take time? Absolutely.
0: Well, uh, uh, there's not many. You're probably the first, actually, I've ever heard had the you know I, I, you see you might see it as a team leader, um, or you might see it as, so as a sergeant level in if uh, for in the police you might see it at an inspector level. But I don't think I've ever seen um, it at a at, at a CEO level to to have a go at it. So it's, it's so it's such a beautiful um, story to hear that it is possible, um, and and to have. Well, it's possible it would,
1: to have a go at it, like yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I, I think the AFP. I, I, the API left is a better organisation than the one that I joined, certainly, and better than the one that I took over. And I think it's continued to improve, and and, and it needs to, and it will continue to. I, by no means do I say that I got it right on every occasion, um, and then everything was perfect. Yeah, far from it.
0: I like, and I like what you said. Um, uh, you can never claim victory on culture. Uh, uh, the inertia tide brings it back. And there's, um, you make me think, you know, when you talk about Harvard, there's a uh, peter Drucker, did he? He yep, went through Harvard. So, so, yep. so he, one of his famous quotes is, um, "Culture uh, eats strategy for breakfast." Yeah,
1: um, that's true. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and that's you know, the greatest strategy
1: in the world. Um, greatest strategy in the world, but if you don't have the culture to implement it, if your force isn't ready for change, if your people aren't subscribed to it, I um I, in in my exit from the police, I did a um a, a speech um, where I talked about change, and and this is one of the things I got wrong. I think you can break any organisation down into four groups. 30% roughly, yeah, give or take, 30% will be on board with the change you want to make. They'll believe it, they'll intuitively understand it, and they're ready to change. There's another 30% who could be like that first 30%, but you just need to spend more time in the why. You need to explain it to them. Why do they need to do something different? Why do they need to make themselves uncomfortable? But that's okay, they'll do it. That's another 30 Then there's 30% who are largely agnostic they're good workers they're probably your best workers they just want to come to work do their job go home and they don't their life doesn't revolve around their job so the change is irrelevant for them so long as it doesn't detrimentally affect them
0: yeah
1: and then there's 10 percent that it doesn't matter what you say what you do they will they will resist that change i focus on that 10 percent, alan i spent too much energy and time thinking if i can understand why we need to change i've been in this organization 25 years these are people I know, some of them. Surely yeah. I can convince them. I can bring them on. So I spent my time focused on the 10% when I should have been focused on that second 30% Yeah, because then I would have had 60% and, and the change happens when you've got that many. Um, I It wasn't until later in my term as commissioner that I realised I've, I've wasted too much energy on the naysayers. It wouldn't matter what I do. They're not going to agree. And yeah. I started to get back to the why. And I say it to everybody now when I want to talk about change, um, when you think you are sick of hearing your messages, that's probably when people are starting to hear them, so keep going. Just, wow. you can't say it enough, just stay in the why.
0: Wow, wow. that's really like one of the questions, uh, I think you've just answered one of the last questions I asked in an interview. So I'm really conscious of um, our time and I, and we could, we could drill down on your commissionership a lot, but I think you just gave us a taste of why you are different um, and why, why your CV goes on to explain some of the things that you do next. So um, do you want to take us to... The
1: uh, Bushfire guys? Agency. Yeah. Pardon? The Bushfire Agency.
0: Bushfire Agency. And then you also have the other one, um, the, cha- the Change, The Champion of Change. The uh, Champions of Change. Yeah, well, that, yeah. That, The
1: Champions of Change is something that came about as my term as Commissioner. I, I became um, a strong and vocal advocate for change around gender, inclusion, intersectionality, um, partly because I was on a journey of learning this myself and I felt that there's many others out there like me that probably are ignorant to these, the reality. So that's become a core part of who I am. I mean, in many, in many ways, people look back on my term as Commissioner, they see culture, they see gender. I'd like to be also remembered for the operational things we did. Terrorism was a big part of my ter- my time as Commissioner and we did some amazing work in that space. But the reality is people will see... Um, yeah, the, the work I tried to do around gender. The the Male Champions of Change, which then became the Champions of Change Coalition, is something I'm still a member of as a non-executive director now. And it, it opened um, the doors for me to be exposed to captains of industry around the around Australia and the world to, to a degree, um, to sit with, with chairs of boards, CEOs of big private organisations, and see the world through their eyes and understand their change journey as well. Partly, I wanted to try and take their lessons back into the AFP, but also it's just become a part of who I am. Like it's even now as a partner in Deloitte, I'm a vocal proponent and, and advocate for for change around gender and intersectionality and diversity and respect at work. Um, so it's I think it's just who I am now.
0: Beautiful. And yet you, you either talk, you either are committed to this or you, this path that you're talking about or, or you're not. Um, mm. And it's so refreshing to hear someone at your level. Like, um, I think through our working careers, we have a there's something that that we're passionate about, and there's our hot button. So, your hot button is culture um, yep. and, and gender. But what I love about your story, it then goes on to continue pursuit of that. It, it didn't stop yep. at, no. at your commissionership. So, beautiful. No, I mean- uh,
1: and look, mate, and I don't want to bore your listeners, but um, maybe you know, two or three minutes just quickly to tell you the story of the National Bushfire Recovery Agency. Everyone will remember 2019-20, the Black Summer fires. Um, I, like every, like many people, I was down the coast. I was watching this unfold around me. I'd left policing three months before. If I'm honest, I was wondering what the hell I'm going to do next, and oh. and thinking my phone's not ringing as much as I thought it might. So I was a bit anxious. Um, but I knew I had something to offer, and then the phone rings and, it, and it's the prime minister's number comes up. And it's a funny story because I was driving my daughter's car because it would appear that 18 year olds don't know how to wash a car or fill it up with petrol. So <laughs> I was driving it to get it washed and fill it up and the, and the number came up and I nearly didn't answer it because I thought, oh, I'll let it get a message so I can think about whatever it is um, before yep. I call him back. Anyway, I answered it and he said, Andrew, you know, we, we need um, to do something different uh, with this response. Uh, we've got, a, a way forward that we did with the North Queensland, um, monsoon trough of that, you know, remember that big wet in 2019, yeah. I'd like you to lead the recovery. I said, Pam, I'd be honored. Um, and then I rang my wife after that and said, Oh, you know how I was a bit anxious about what I was going yeah. to do next. I'm yeah. not anxious anymore. i got a job. Um, she wasn't super happy,
0: yeah.
1: uh, because the last thing she wanted me to do was go back into government and, and, you know, I, I was tired and I was a little bit broken at the end of my time. She wanted me to, to do something that allowed me to, to come back together. But this at the end of the day, this was the perfect job for me because I was able to use everything I'd learnt in policing. I was able to use what I felt I was good at, which is in, engagement and and connection with community and build an agency from scratch. So you know, January the 6th, I had one person, we built that agency up over the course of the following months to, you know, well over a hundred people, you know, 30 odd agencies, seconded people in. And I And as well as wanting to do good things for the community, my whole focus was how do we help the communities? So I spent a lot of time out on the ground, which I was incredibly grateful for. The other thing I did, though, and we did as a leadership team in the agency was to say, all right, we've got two ways to do this. We can just be like every other government agency um, and, and focus on process and bureaucracy, or we can just try and shake it up and focus on outcomes. And I cared... Do you recall I said earlier, I think if you focus on the how, the what becomes easy. So I didn't you know, I didn't worry about strategic plans. I didn't worry about things like that. I just said, here is how, these are the behaviours that we are going to exhibit as an agency. And this is what I want us to be known for when we're out there doing our work. And it engendered a, a culture in the MBRA that I'm proud of, um, that people still talk to me about today, that we still get together and discuss, um, you know, what we created, ultimately it led to the creation of something bigger and better in the commonwealth which i'm, I'm proud of and it was the you know I, I had a long policing career of 30 years you've had a longer one but 30 years was my career it was 18 months it was the most impactful 18 months of my public service life
0: wow that's huge um talk uh, like you're you're obviously uh like you've you're, you're finishing this interview just as enthused as, as at the start <laughs> and you're talking about this period of your life. So t- t- tell us about um, some of the, th- say, two things out of the, I think you call it the MBRA, the National Bushfire Response Agency.
1: Recovery so Agency. Recovery
0: yeah. Agency. Um, give us two things out of that that you're most proud of and how did they come about? Um,
1: one is one is the we created an organisation that showed that there was a different way to go about recovering this country, that you could have a human-centred, community-centred approach to recovery, and it led the way for the Commonwealth to, to have a Royal Commission, and for that Royal Commission to say the agency needs, the, the Commonwealth needs to create an agency on a permanent basis, which it did. Mm-hmm. So up until that point, we, you know, we stood up and we were a time-limited agency. I'm proud that we did that. The other thing I'm proud of is even to this day, I have victims of that fire who lost their homes and lost everything still reach out to me via LinkedIn or whatever, ask me how I'm going, what I'm doing, tell me their stories, um, tell me their frustrations at times. And I'm an, I'm so proud of the relationship we created with the community, not just me, but everybody. Everybody who went out and met with the community took the same ethos. And there were, there were some moments that will stay with me forever, like that Kangaroo Island, the destruction and devastation of the two fires that ripped through kangaroo island t- turned it into a moonscape i'd never been to kangaroo island before yeah. um yeah i'd love to I, I will go back now and see it uh, in, on its journey back but um to, to sit and hear their stories and there's nothing better than the australian character um to have rural fire service folk tell me that their their home burnt while they were out fighting and saving someone else's home yeah uh, it just it, it was humbling. Um, it was uh, a privilege, and it yeah. You know, I'd sat in the Commonwealth for thirty. I was thirty four years in the Commonwealth public service in total. Um, I'd sat at thirty thousand feet in the Commonwealth where you pull big levers: taxation, defence, welfare payments. And all of a sudden, I saw things at the ground level, and I, I I saw communities say to me, "So who are you, and where are you from? Oh, you're from the Commonwealth. What does the Commonwealth do? I don't understand." Yeah, the local government was so important to them. Um, so it, it changed my view of federation. It changed my thinking about what's important and what matters. to communities, uh, you know, it there's we there were I visited regional and rural communities who in who in fact were no more than an hour away from major metropolitan centres, but in their minds they may as well have been 250 kilometres west of Alice Springs. It was the way that they felt about. Yeah government services reaching them and the support. and the, So, you know, they said to me a few times, everything was great until the help arrived. We, we just needed to be allowed to get on and resolve this ourselves. But, yeah, some harrowing stories, Alan. Um, but, yeah, I'm proud of it. I'm really proud of the work that we did.
0: Is, um, is that period of time when Mick Willing from the New South Wales Police worked with you yes. as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so Mick okay. was
1: appointed by the um, government in New South Wales to lead the New South Wales recovery effort. And I don't know if it was intentional, but it was a master stroke because all of a sudden we could put aside any of the tensions and rivalries that exist between levels of government and just agree that we're going to do a good job. And we shared everything. Um, There was nothing he was doing that I didn't know about, nothing I was doing that he didn't know about. Together we plotted a whole bunch of recovery um, arrangements that were non-traditional. We saw the need for things like small business who weren't actually flame affected, but that had lost business and lost their lost their income. We saw ways that we could help them in ways that government had never done before. So we kind of reread the rule book. And it was it was largely because I had good people in all the jurisdictions, but with Mick, you yeah, know, we were it was two peas in a pod, frankly.
0: Yeah. If you you were just unconscious, uh, um that you said uh, you were driving your daughter's car she hadn't <laughs> washed it she hadn't needed petrol you got a phone call from the commissioner from the um prime minister um and you said yes with before consulting your wife um yep. but you made a comment along the lines of um that you'd been in a bad space or along those words what, what do you want to you don't have to but do you want to um elaborate oh, yeah, no, on that Look, I was, um, I don't think until I, my,
1: my family, and I say this to everybody now, listen to your family, I probably didn't, I thought I was fine, but my time as commissioner, the things I tried to do had taken a toll, um, as as many police officers do. Um, and by the time I got to the end of my, my tenure, I needed to get out. I would like, I, you know, I thought about staying on and the prime minister at the time asked me if I would, but um, there was other factors at play and I just thought, no, I'm not the right person. Um, it wasn't until I left that I realised that I was probably a little bit broken, um, not badly, uh, but I needed a break. And it was funny because my phone went very quiet. I, mean, I was only 50 at this point, 49, mm. frankly. Um, so I had a lot of life left in working, professional life. But my phone went went um, quiet. And I started to worry. It was like, oh. What am I going to do? Is Somebody—is there work for me? How will I find something? It wasn't until later that, when I talked to a lot of my colleagues across the Commonwealth and outside of the states and territories, they said, "They said, oh, AJ, we knew that you were you needed a rest.' We just so we did, we all got together and had spoken about the fact that we weren't going to call you." And I was kind of like, "Oh God, I wish you'd told me that," because I was <laughs> it was just increasing my anxiety. Yeah. But I think um, I needed to take a break. You now, do I miss do I miss policing? Yeah, of course I do. Do I miss um, being commissioner, no, somebody else's job now. <laughs> mm. and, I, and I wish them the very best, uh, but I probably needed a break. And so, and my wife wasn't keen for me to go back into government quickly because she knows what I'm like, I'm I'm 110%, I'm all in. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know when to say no. Um, and I throw myself into it. And I think she was worried that that was what I was gonna do, which is what I did, frankly, with the Bushfire mm. Agency, but it, it gave me such a sense of satisfaction.
0: Uh, you're um, you're a special guy. I can see why Mick Willing liked you so much. So, so if you want to go, one thing, one of the things I really uh love about you is um, is uh, I think Mick Willing talked about it. Like all of us in our careers go through some gut wrenching times, and your your mentor, your friend, Mick Willing went through his own gut wrenching time in the yep. in the New South Wales Police, and um, where he was um. He was told his services were no longer needed., um, yep. uh, which was uh, very similar to what you how you just described. He was only a young man he um he needed to take stock uh, and he needed um, support to get through that time. But one of the things I think Mick talked about is that you reached out to him um, and mm-hmm. supported him. Um, do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, uh... Yeah, you know, I think it's what any friend would do, right? Um, I remember a phone call. Mick gave me a phone call to start with and said, AJ, I've got some news for you. I've essentially been told, don't come Monday. Now, I was floored by that. Um, but, but I, you know, full respect to Karen and everybody, that the, at this level, these decisions aren't personal. Um, they're, just, they're just the decisions that need to get made, at, you know, for a variety of reasons. And I didn't know what those reasons were, but what I wanted to focus on was Mick and, and make him realise that while his his um identity had been wrapped around policing and probably senior policing that there was another mcwilliam identity that was just waiting to come out and we just needed to find what that was and give him the opportunity to grow and explore it so that's what we talked about you know i tried not to focus on um you know to move him out of that space of being disgruntled and angry and just go right what are we going to do next you know because i was in the same spot you know yeah I, i was struggling to work out what i wanted to do next and i yeah, to me it was a challenge. Can we be different? Can is what we've learned as a senior police relevant? Is it usable somewhere else? Um, so we focused on that. And yeah, we talked a lot and we probably I wouldn't um, you know, mostly it was just chatting, to be honest. Um, and a voice, um, yeah, you know, a bit of a mirror to reflect things back to him and and to make him realize that there's more things in policing.
0: That's beautiful. And I really like um I th- uh, I have the, the belief myself is we with support we can get through anything. Yeah, um, absolutely. Pretty well we can achieve without support. It's it's despair. <laughs> so um yeah. So um, I I I think it says so much about you. Like it's such a, a probably a public thing. Um, but Andrew Colvin still reached out to his mate uh, and and helped him through navigate the next yeah. chapter in his life. So that's pretty special. Um. I think we're pretty well there. Uh, You've you've talked about, probably one of the, you're quite proud of your attention to the culture and the gender in the the Australian Federal Police, then the National Bushfire Prevention Agency, Recovery recovery, recovery Agency. Um, it's probably one of the highlights that you're, you're 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 most proud of, and and it's interesting all the other things in your career that happened up until that you you where you come to with that. Um, where do you want to take us now? Like I think we're at the pretty well at the end of the interview. Um, what do you say to anyone listening to this? Like um, and that could be as as I described it could be the thirty year veteran in a. In a yep. In, a, in an organisation, not necessarily a policing organisation, that yep. thinks they've got another ten years left, yep. um, or you could be talking to someone that's just starting out. What would your what would your say three gems of um, advice be to future leaders?
1: So I'd say find way to find a way to have fun. You're going to be doing it for a long time, so find a way to enjoy what you do. And if you if you're struggling to find a way to enjoy what you do, then think about whether it's you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. I would say it doesn't matter what level you are, you could be the most junior recruit at the Goldman Police Academy or wherever, you are a leader. It's contextual. You know, you, you are a leader and see yourself as a leader. You can shape and influence what happens around you. And as you move through your career, that context will change, but your leadership style will evolve. So don't think that it's everybody else's problem. Take ownership, be a leader. Uh, and then... The last one, you know, you sum up some of the things I said. I'm proud of. I guess the reality is, I'm proud that I didn't take the easy path. I always was that person that said, "Okay, I'll I'll try and do that. I don't know much about proceeds of crime legislation, but we we need to do something. I'll I'll step forward into that. I don't. I'm not going to be the commissioner that has this deep secret that our organisation's got some some terrible practices. You know, I, I leaned into the to the terrorism issue um, multiple times throughout my career. Uh, I think all that comes down in my mind to, I'm proud that I didn't accept the status quo. And I don't, And that would be my advice. My third piece is just because it's always been done that way doesn't mean it always has to be done that way. Look to improve, Look improve yourself, improve those people around you, improve your position in life. Um, and that doesn't mean be a go-getter, it doesn't mean climb over the top of people. I never sought rank, I never sought status. I couldn't care less about those things. I sought to influence. So focus on your influence.
0: Wow, I'm not going to. I'm not going to even summarize that. That's beautiful, Andrew. <laughs> um, I I really thank you for coming on the show. Like this has been, I think Mick Willing was about number th- third interview in the, in this series. So that's back in August, September, 2021, and you indicated at that, that time yeah, you would no, like you you would like to come <laughs> on the show. But it just shows the level of. Um, Uh, what you have on your plate now so thank you for coming on to the show you didn't disappoint I I love um I love where you took us um you're a you're you're the genuine deal and thank you so much for sharing everything that you have and it's been pretty personal so thank you Uh, I'm
1: an open book Alan thanks for having me on thanks for asking you're probably gonna have to edit this or you're gonna put your listeners to sleep um because it's gone on for a while but look yeah thank you I've enjoyed it
0: I think uh, I, I'm not going to edit it at all. Like I, <laughs> what, what I've found is um, interviews like this, like even uh, Mick's interview was a rather long one. Um, the feedback we got, people just listen to it over and over and over again and probably a word, a word <laughs> yeah, a, a word of warning. I think Mick Willing got approached by a number of people to be his their mentor after the interview. Ah, so you could be busy. <laughs> so, <laughs> no,
1: look, I would love that very much. Yeah. Okay.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Good yeah. night, Alan.
1: Have a good night. Yeah.
0: yeah. All I can say is, wow, thank you, Andrew Colvin. Andrew left us with three main areas of focus for leaders who want to do things at a better level and in a different way. His first tip, find a way to have fun at work. And if if it is not fun, look for another opportunity. The second bit, it doesn't really matter what level you're at in an organization, you are a leader. You influence a better environment where you're at. And over time, your leadership style and skills will evolve. And number three, he is proud that he didn't take the easy path. Never accept the status quo. Thank you, Andrew Colvin, for an amazing interview. And thank you, listeners. Until next time, we'll see you in a fortnight.